If you join me in Bible study today, please open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Last week we ended discussing verses 13 to 18, but we didn't get anywhere close to the end, did we? No, but let me back up. Why does Paul teach us about the rapture and the resurrection in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 18? So that we can be prepared. So that we can be prepared, yes, but there's more to it than that. Encouragement and hope. Paul had been at Thessaloniki for about three weeks preaching. And people got saved. And then Paul moved on. And those people that have had three weeks of teaching now have to deal with their friends and family saying, Are you an idiot? <laughs> We've got all these gods up here on Mount Olympus. we got this one, that one, and the other one. And you want to throw off all the gods that have been looking over your grandmothers and grandfathers for centuries for some god you never even heard of. Why would you do that? And they come under such scrutiny, such pressure, such persecution from friends and families that in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, I was afraid that you guys had just walked away from your faith. And in this world today, how many of you have ever been depressed? Don't put up your hands. We all have, right? How many people out there commit suicide each year because they can't find a reason to go on? Well, when you're under such pressure, such persecution, such tribulation, such depression, Paul says, remember this, the Lord is coming for you. He is the goal. He's coming. He's preparing a place for you. He may be decorating it as opposed to building it, but he's coming. And he's going to take you. But you must want. Stay strong. Abide in him, as it says in John chapter 5. Keep your faith strong. So in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, which is the first book Paul ever wrote, he encourages them to keep their eyes on the goal that Messiah is coming. Now, in this world today, how many theories are there on the rapture and the resurrection? Yeah, there's so many. The first one I want to throw out there for you to put in your notes is the doctrine of preterism. Preterism says all this prophecy was all fulfilled in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. That since that time we are living in the messianic kingdom where there is no war, there is no hurt. It's all just love and peace and joy. Are you guys are looking at me like, well, we know that one's not right. And then there's the pre-tribulation rapture. There's the mid-tribulation rapture theory, the post-tribulation rapture theory, the pre-wrath rapture theory. As we go through this study today, Let's see which the scripture supports, eh? And let's start by reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 to pick out the nuggets, those things that we need as we compare the other scriptures on the topic. And by the way, I will not go through every scripture on the rapture and resurrection today. You may think I will by the time I'm done. 
But it's all over the Scripture. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's in the Pauline letters. It's in the, the what do you call it? letters written by John? The Johannine letters? Okay. Uh, yeah, the John written letters. How about that? Johnine, okay. Verse 13 says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. What's he calling the people? Ignorant. ignorant. Yeah. Why is he calling them ignorant? Because they don't know this. No, because they're panicking. Some of our people have died. Oh no, they're lost. They didn't make it to the rapture. What's going to become of them? Paul's going, think about it. Think about it. Do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, meaning died as believers. If they died as non-believers, that's it. With all due apologies to the Seventh-day Adventist who says you can save your dead relatives by being baptized for them, that's not in the scripture. So, concerning those who fall asleep, died as believers, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Those who have no hope are those who died without faith. For if we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, do you believe it? Do you really believe it? I want to tell you, when we go to Israel in October, if we're still here, you're going to see the tomb and it's still empty all these years later. He did rise again. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Yeshua. Give me a verse. Zechariah chapter 14. Keep a finger here. Zechariah 14, verse 5. Zechariah 14, verse 5. The very last sentence. Are you there? Not quite, okay. Referring to Yeshua, it says, Thus the Lord my God will come. They call Yeshua the Lord my God right here in Zechariah. And all the saints with you. Oh, that's important. When the Lord breaks the heavens in Revelation 19.11, who is with him? The saints. How can they return with him unless they have been in heaven with him? Ah, that's something to keep in mind. So as we come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the end of verse 14, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Yeshua. So somehow those that have been in the grave as believers have been resurrected and will return with Messiah. We're going to read about that, how it happens in just a moment. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Why does he add by the word of the Lord? It's supported by scripture. The Lord himself told Paul this and he, we can all see it. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. What does it mean to precede? It means to go before, to come first. No. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. But you know what? Look at the Greek. It's not actually the word shout. It is a teruah, but it's not the word teruah. The actual word is a word of command. A word of command. Revelation 4.1. What's the word of command? Come up hither. That's the word of command. And I was just excited when I saw it. It's not a word of suggestion. It's not a word of invitation. It's a word of command. Get up. Come here. And we will go. With the voice of an archangel. 
Ooh, who's that archangel? Michael. He's the archangel who stands watch over Israel. And with the trumpet of God, make note of that, with the trumpet of God. That's not Donald Trump. Don't listen to all those false rumors. It's referring to the feast of trumpets, as we're going to find out in 1 Corinthians 15. And the dead in Messiah will rise first. Where are their souls if they have died in Messiah? They're under the throne of God, but where are their bodies? Their bodies have been in the grave. But now the bodies are going to be raised, changed to immortality. No more corruption. And the soul is going to rejoin with that renewed body. <sighs> yeah. Verse 17, And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The comfort one another refers to comfort those who are mourning over those who have lost loved ones who died as believers, thinking that we'll never see them again. Yes, you will. Soon and very soon. From here, we went back to Isaiah chapter 26. I want to do a little review just to put all the pieces together. Isaiah 26, starting in verse 19. Why did God not put all the pieces in one spot? Or then he could have just written glance at to show yourself approved. But he didn't, did he? He said, study to show yourself approved. Sometimes the most difficult things to learn is the ones we have to work the hardest for, but we retain it. Yeah. So let's dig it out here. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. How can dead people live? They must be resurrected. Is this the first reference to resurrection in the Old Testament? No. Keep a finger here. Go back to Genesis. Genesis, all the way back at the time of the beginning. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. What does that mean, tested? Is an algebra test? Oh no. Geometry, calculus. is testing his faith. Is his faith real? He's made declarations of faith. Are they real? God says to Abraham, said to him, Abraham, why Abraham and not Avram? God changed his name from Avram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. And God promised Abraham a multitude of descendants through which son? Through Isaac. Does Isaac have any children at this point? No. So God promised Abraham a countless number of descendants through Isaac. And Isaac has no children yet. That's important. Says to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. That's Hanani in Hebrew. It means more than here I am. It means here I am and ready to do whatever you ask of me. There's a song out there called Hanani, the servants cry. Hanani, the servants cry. He said, take now your son, your only son Isaac. 
that is the only descendant of the promise, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. Where's that? That's where the Temple Mount is. Offer him there, not sacrifice him. Do you see that? Offer him there, not sacrifice him. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. A burnt offering is the only kind of sacrifice or offering where you get nothing back. It's wholly consumed. So Abraham rose early. The Hebrew words actually read rose early as an excited to get on the path that God put him on. This Abraham who was crying to God in Genesis 15 that I have no heirs finally has a son 25 years later. The son's grown up to be about 30 years of age. And God says, take him and offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham gets up early. If it had been me, I think I'd have slept in. <laughs> but he gets up early. Let's get on with it. And saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him. Why two? Witnesses. Two witnesses. On the word of two or more, let all things be established. And he took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, mark that down, no word in the Bible is irrelevant unless it was added by man. The third day. From Messiah's first coming, there are two days and then the day of the Lord. So this picture is the day of the Lord. Lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. So Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. If Abraham sacrifices Isaac, who's the we? Does he have a mouse in his pocket? No. So what does Abraham know? That God cannot lie, so Isaac is coming back. If Abraham sacrifices Isaac, God is going to raise him from the dead and they are coming back down that mountain. How can we know for sure that's what that means? Go to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. You're absolutely right. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17. By faith, Abraham. And you're still turning pages. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Didn't sacrifice him, but offered him up. He was gonna. And he would receive the promises, that is, of descendants through Isaac. Offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. That's Genesis 21, verse 12. That's before Genesis 22. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, which he also received him in a figurative sense. When do we read Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac? That's the reading at the Feast of Trumpets at Yom Teruah, which teaches the coming rapture and resurrection. Oops, I shouldn't give that away yet. Okay. Go back to Isaiah 26. So when Isaiah writes, your dead shall live, did the people going around go, wow, wow, what does that mean? The answer is no. They knew from Genesis already about the resurrection. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Who's the my? 
Isaiah. Isaiah says when the rapture resurrection comes, I'm going. Awake and sing, you dwell in dust. Just make a note. The song is in Revelation chapter 5. It's called the new song. For your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people. Are all God's people dead? No. This is where the rapture and resurrection get put together. Paul was the first one to see that. Before that, people just thought, well, this is about the resurrection of the dead. But he didn't say, come my dead people, did he? He didn't say, come my formerly dead people. So when the command come, that shout of command, then all of God's people are coming. It says, enter your chambers. That word is the chadar, the bridal chamber. If you remember the old Jewish wedding practice, the bridegroom and the bride would go into the wedding chamber by themselves for seven days, called the seven days of the chupa. Those seven days picture the seven years of the tribulation period. That's the bride and the bridegroom together. And at the end of the seven days, the bride and the bridegroom would be presented to the world. So it says, shut your doors behind you, just like God shut the door of the ark before the rains fell. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment. If a day is, Lord, a thousand years, what's seven days? It's just a flippin' time. Until the indignation is passed. That word indignation is the um, it's the tribulation period. So while the tribulation period is going on on earth, the bride and the bridegroom are in the bridal chambers in heaven. What does that say about the mid-trib rapture? Are we here through half of the tribulation? No. no. Are we here through all of the tribulation? No. And then once the indignation is passed, we're at the end of the seven years, it says, For behold, the Lord comes out of his place. What's his place? The bridal chamber. The bridal chamber is in heaven. Remember Psalm 110, 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And at the end of the tribulation period, in Revelation 11, Messiah returns. Revelation 19, 11, Messiah returns. For the old Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. What's another word for iniquity? Lawlessness. The earth will also disclose her blood, will no more cover her slain. These bridal chambers are described for us in the book of John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John chapter 14, as much as anything, puts the post-tribulation rapture theory to bed. The post-rapture theory says, the post-tribulation rapture theory says that in Revelation 20, after the Lord returns, the battle of Armageddon is over, that's when the rapture and resurrection takes place. But look at John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Where is the Lord's Father's house? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? It's in heaven. So if Messiah is preparing the bridal chambers in heaven 
and he's on the earth when the rapture and resurrection takes place and remains on the earth. What, do we use Airbnb to rent out the rooms in heaven? <laughs> he says, in my father's house are many mansions. Those are the bridal chambers. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So if he's going to take us up to heaven to his father's house to the bridal chambers. And we're going to be with him forever. Where is he? Not on earth. He's in heaven. Hmm. Now, that finishes the review of last week. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is written after 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So all the churches have a copy of 1 Thessalonians. But Paul's going to add some detail to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about resurrection. All about resurrection. Start in verse 20. But now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, which man was that? Adam. By man also came the resurrection of the dead, that's Messiah. For as in Adam all die, even so in Messiah all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Messiah the firstfruits. When Messiah arose in Matthew 27, did he arise alone? No, there was a group that was risen with him that showed themselves to the people in Jerusalem saying, yeah, I'm not dead anymore. Those are the first fruits. And in the biblical harvest, after the first fruits comes the main harvest. That's the next clause. Afterward, those who are Messiahs had his coming. And then at the end of the tribulation period are the gleanings. Those that were not saved when the main rapture resurrection happened in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. But got saved during the seven year tribulation period. And there will be a countless multitude. Verse 24, then comes the end. The end? Heaven and earth are gone. We're all wiped out of existence. It's just over, right? No. This word end is telos. T-E-L-O-S. It means the goal. What is the goal? Eternal life. With our God and Father. So then comes the end, the goal, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts it into all rule and all authority and all power, which is talking about the satanic powers. Satan's defeated. Verse 25, for he must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy he will be, that will be destroyed is death. Then go over to verse 50. After giving us the overview, now Paul's going to drill down to the details. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot, is not able to, inherit the kingdom of God. How many of you watched any sci-fi shows where somebody tries going out of the spaceship without a spacesuit on? It doesn't work out well, does it? You cannot go in this body to see God in heaven. Okay? The body's got to be changed. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, this, this, this human body that's frail and full of sin and death, 
cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Which is corruption, our body or the kingdom of God? Our body is corruption, the kingdom of God is incorruptible. So we must become incorruptible to come up to the kingdom of God. So verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Don't go look in the English dictionary for what the word mystery means. It's from the Hebrew word sod, S-O-D. In Jewish hermeneutics, there are four levels of biblical interpretation. The Peshat, P-E-S-H-A-T, is the literal. What do the words say? Then you have the Remez, R-E-M-E-Z. Look at all of the verses on a particular topic. They will all give you different parts of the picture that you can then assemble into a whole. Then you have the Derash, D-E-R-A-S-H. The Derash is the homily where in a traditional church a pastor will read a verse then tell you a story that somehow relates to the verse that's a derage it's a homily it's let me give you an example of how you might see this then the deepest level is the sod s-o-d that means the verses have always been there but there's more to the verse than we saw before He's referring back to Isaiah chapter 26, come my people. Paul's saying, wait a minute, we're not all going to be dead. When God says, come my people, who's coming? All his people. There he says, I tell you, mystery, we shall not all sleep. We shall not all have died when Messiah comes for us, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The last trumpet is another name for which of these seven appointed times? The Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets in Hebrew is Yom Teruah, the day of the awakening trumpet blast. Hmm. Paul says, think about it for a moment. For when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, we, that is we who alive and remain, shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So Paul says when that trumpet sounds, if you're still alive, your body's going to be transformed from a body of flesh and blood to an immortal body that will not die, that cannot sin, that cannot be corrupted. And it's in that state that we will meet Messiah in the clouds in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 54, so when this corruptible is put on incorruption, this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? What's that mean? Death has no more power on the resurrected body. It's over. Death could not hold us. Oh, Hades. Hades is the grave, the place of the dead. Where is your victory? You couldn't hold us. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. What does that mean? The wages of sin is death. So when we are raptured or resurrected, our sins have been forgiven. The sin has no more hold on us. The death cannot hold us. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. You mean we didn't save ourselves? No. 
Has anybody ever saved themselves? No. The answer is no. It was never about that. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why does Paul tell us to be steadfast and immovable? What does that mean? Steadfast in our faith. Abide in Messiah. Be immovable. But always abounding in the work of the Lord is what? Keeping the commandments of God. If keeping the commandments of God does not save us, and it doesn't, then what does it do? It shows God that our faith is real. Go back to Genesis 22 for a moment. You know that in Genesis chapter 15, in verse 6, it says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted him for righteousness. But then in Genesis 22, later, his faith is tested by, take, by being told to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah and offer him there. And in verse 10 of Genesis 22, are you there? And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. What's his intention and purpose? He's going to kill Isaac. And then God's going to resurrect him. But the angel of the Lord, who is the angel of the Lord? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. Called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Hanani, here I am. What do you want? I'm listening. He said, do not lay your hand on the land or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham didn't have to kill Isaac. Abraham had to be willing to, to demonstrate his faith that God would resurrect Isaac because God's promise to him of all those descendants through Isaac cannot fail. Can God's word ever fail? Does God lie? No. Does God change his mind? No. Every word that he says will come to pass. So what then? Look at verse 13. If you've never seen it, it's a mind blower. Where is Abraham at the moment? He's on what we call the Temple Mount. Where was Messiah crucified? On the Temple Mount. Outside the gates of the city, but it's still on the same mountain. The Temple Mount, Mount Moriah. Then Abraham looked, lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him, that Hebrew word is achar, A-C-H-A-R. It means both physically behind him, it's in turn and look over your shoulder, everybody. But it also means in the future, afterward in time. There was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. There was a literal ram caught in the thicket. The thicket represents the sins of the world. But it's also looking in the future and seeing Messiah crucified on this very mountain in place of Isaac. As Messiah dies in place of Isaac. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Meaning in place of his son. The ancient Jewish sages say that one 
horn of that ram sounded in Exodus 19 to announce the betrothal of Israel to God. And if the other is the last trumpet that will blow on the Feast of Trumpets to call us home. Is that true or not? We'll find out when the trumpet blows. We will find out. So how did God know that Abraham's faith was true? He demonstrated it by his actions. Okay, so what pieces do we have now? In 1 Thessalonians 4, we note the rapture and resurrection take place together. In Isaiah 26, we know that it happens before the za'am. The word za'am refers to the wrath of God being poured out in the tribulation period. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and following, we find that it takes place at the last trumpet. And in John 14, verses 1 to 3, we find that Messiah is building those marriage chambers in heaven in his father's house and will bring us to heaven to those marriage chambers, the bridal chambers, and there we shall always be with the Lord. And in Zechariah 14, 5, when he returns in Revelation 19, 11, we return with him. Now let's add to that Revelation chapter 4, where the main harvest takes place. Because right now, from what we know in those pieces, the rapture could be before the tribulation or before the wrath. So pre-trib or pre-wrath. Marvin Rosenthal was kind of slicing it pretty thin to say, well, don't when the wrath starts, but it's before that. Revelation 4.1. First you got to know, since it begins after these things, what are these things? Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are the church age. The church age ends at chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven. If you were part of John's Jewish audience, back about the year 95 AD or 95 common era, and you heard the phrase, the door standing open in heaven, you would say he's talking about the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. That's been the teaching from time immemorial, that on the Feast of Trumpets, when that awakening blast sounds, the door to heaven opens. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, speaking with me, saying, come up here. There's that loud command of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. After the church age comes to an end. Does that mean every person sitting, sitting in every church pew around the world is going in the rapture and resurrection? I don't think so. We'll find out. Verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit. What's the point of the immediately? What did he respond to? The call. The call that command, come up here. It was a command and pew, there he is. Immediately I was in the spirit. Was John literally taken to heaven 2,000 years ago? No. means he sees it in a vision. Was he the first person to see it in a vision? No. Keep a finger here and go back to Isaiah chapter 6. 
Isaiah saw it first. Isaiah chapter 6. If you have your chart of the kings of Israel and Judah and the prophets that prophesied to them, you will recognize it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Is that temple on earth? Yes, ma'am. I'm Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. What does yours say? Ah, that would explain it. So let me give you a chance to get to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And while she's turning there, Paul's point to these new believers in Thessaloniki is if you let your family take you away from your faith in the Lord, what are you giving up? What are you giving up? Chapter 6, verse 1 of Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's the temple in heaven. Do you read about that temple in heaven in Revelation? Yes, you do. And above it stood seraphim. Seraphim are angelic beings, but they're beings of fire. They're the ones who stand in the sun and go, Hey, this is cool. <laughs> Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face so that he doesn't see the glory of God. With two he covered his feet. Remember how the Lord told Moses, take off your shoes for you're standing on hallowed ground. And with two he flew. Don't know how he flies with his face covered, but well, that's just the way he is. And he cried one to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. You guys know this song. What is it? Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Never once, never twice, never four times. Three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Who is the Lord of hosts? That's our Messiah. Lord of hosts means the one who leads the heavenly armies in Revelation 19.11. The whole earth is full of his glory. At what point in time is the whole earth full of his glory? That's at the time of the day of the Lord. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me for I am undone. Meaning I'm a dead man. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal with which he had taken, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. That word purged there means atoned for. But what is the, what is the symbolism? Where did he get the live coal? From the altar. The altar... That's the altar where Messiah put his own shed blood. So what atoned for the sin of Isaiah? The shed blood of our Messiah. Okay, I'm sorry. Go back to Revelation 4. I get all caught up in these stories. They're so exciting. 
Verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven. Did you see that in Isaiah 6? The throne set in heaven? And one sat on the throne. Which one? Our Messiah did. Does the book of John tell us that all judgments given to the Son? It does. Verse 3, and who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. It doesn't matter if you know what a jasper and a sardius stone look like. They're the first and last stone in the breastplate of the high priest. How did Hebrews 9 describe Messiah as our great high priest? That's the indication of the stones. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Think all the way back to Genesis chapter 7 through 9. What was the symbol of the rainbow? That never again God would destroy the whole earth with a flood, but it's the symbol of mercy. Never again would God's wrath be poured out without mercy. And the mercy is in Messiah. That's why the rainbow is around his throne. An appearance like an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. I cannot tell you for sure who those elders are, but I've told you my opinion in the past. The 12 patriarchs and the 12 apostles. Because in the New Jerusalem, they make up the 12 foundations and the 12 gates. So they represent all the believers from Genesis through Revelation. Clothed in white robes, these are not angels. These are raptured and redeemed saints. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices, just like in Exodus chapter 19. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. That's in the book of Isaiah, isn't it? Chapter 11. The sevenfold spirit of God. Keep a finger here. Go back to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1, says, There shall come forth a rod, it's actually a shoot, from the stem, that's the stump of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots, that branch is Messiah. And then here's the sevenfold spirits. Count with me. The spirit of the Lord, one, shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, two. Understanding, three. The spirit of counsel, four. Might, five. The spirit of knowledge, six. And of the fear of the Lord, seven. That's the sevenfold spirits of God that we read about in Revelation chapters four and five. Back to Revelation 4. Verse 6. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Do you remember in the temple on earth, God had him put a laver to wash in? It represents washing off the dirt, becoming pure before the Lord. That's what we're talking about here. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Those are cherubs. How many of you have seen at Valentine's Day the little cherub with the wings and the diaper? That's not what a cherub looks like. They would be terrifying creatures. 
The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Again, we have the Holy, Holy, Holy. The Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Does that refer to Messiah, who was alive, was crucified, buried, resurrected, and lives forever? Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Laolam va'ed means without ever an end. Never, never an end. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their thrones before the, their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Does John 1 tell us Messiah created all things? Yep. Does Colossians 1 tell us Messiah created all things? Yes, because he is God. And by your will they exist and were created. By your will they exist means, what if the Lord ever said stop? But will he ever say stop? No. Chapter 5, verse 1. With all this going on, it's amazing, it's, it's thrilling, but yet there's an element of sadness to it in verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Do you know what that is? That's the title deed to the earth that Adam lost to Satan at the time of the fall. God said, thou shalt not eat from the tree. Satan said, eat from the tree. And who did they obey? They obeyed Satan. And after that, the Bible says he's now, Satan is now the God of this world. Little G God. So all the pagan idols are trying to get us ultimately to give worship to Satan. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? To open the scroll and loose its seals is to redeem the earth back to God. So who is able to redeem Adam's fall? You've been reading ahead. <laughs> Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. John's crying. There's no one who can redeem the earth back to God. To open and read the scroll to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Oh, who's that? That's Yeshua. The root of David. He is both the root of David and the offspring of David. As Messiah confounded the scribes and Pharisees in the Gospels. Has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So he has the right, he has the power, he has the ability, he has the willingness. So, verse 6 And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. That's our Messiah Yeshua, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 
having seven horns and seven eyes. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. He has absolute power, absolute vision, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Yes, he's taking it out of his own hand. This is a description that we can understand. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. If you ever, ever wonder, does God really appreciate and want my prayers? Just read this. That's the incense before the throne of God. Day and night are your prayers. How many of you have children? That are not with you. How often do you appreciate it when they call. Or when they write. Or when they come visit. And they sang a new song. Remember from Isaiah chapter 26. They awaken sing. Here's the song saying. You Messiah Yeshua are worthy to take the scroll. And to open its seals. For you were slain. Have redeemed us to God by your blood. This is where the conversation usually ends when I'm talking to somebody who teaches a post-tribulation rapture. I say, who are these people before that first seal is opened? The only answer I ever get is, I don't know. Maybe they're angels. Have angels been redeemed to God by the blood of Messiah? No. no. So clearly they're people. And they're people in heaven. And they're singing this song of redemption before the tribulation period begins. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And I made us kings and priests to our God. That's the promise in Revelation chapter 1. That we who are saved, caught up in the rapture and resurrection, will rule and reign with Messiah for the millennial kingdom. And we shall reign on the earth. What's the significance of it? We shall reign on the earth. That means they're not on the earth, right? We shall in the future reign on the earth. Because Messiah is in heaven. Where are the rapture and resurrected saints? They're in heaven with Messiah. But I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. I don't know how many that is, but it's a lot. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and power and glory and honor and power, etc. Be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Here's the first seal being opened. Where are those who have been redeemed to God by the blood of Messiah standing in heaven? When the first seal is opened. Are they in the grave on earth waiting for the resurrection? Or are they in their resurrected bodies in heaven okay let's add to these now 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 
Like I said, it will feel like I cover every verse on this topic, but I'm not going to actually. I want to leave you wanting more. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. When the rapture and resurrected saints are in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, they're receiving their crowns and robes. These are the rewards. So it says in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Messiah. It's called the Bema seat when it's the judgment of the believers. Bema, B-E-M-A. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the believers receive a judgment of rewards. The unbelievers stand the great white throne judgment a thousand years later. They're not going to like their judgment. Does this mean that we all will receive the same reward? No, it doesn't mean that. What it means is there's still time, so let's get busy. Right? Yeah. Let's get the gospel out there. Let's get the message preached. Okay, so who has to appear before Messiah in judgment? Everybody. For believers, it's for rewards. For unbelievers, it's for judgment. Go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. You guys probably all know the Greek word, ek, don't you? E-K, ek. Not ach, that's different. Ek. Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10 Because you have kept my command to persevere, that is, you kept your faith, you kept going. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Pre-trib. It doesn't say I will keep you through the hour of trial, does it? I will keep you out of. That's what the word ek means. Word from there means out of. Let's go to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 talks about the rapture and the resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. At that time, what time? Day of the Lord, more specifically, the tribulation period. Michael, Michael, who is like God, this is the archangel we were reading about, shall stand up, which means it's time for war. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble. We call that what in Jeremiah 30, verse 7? Time of Jacob's trouble, that's the tribulation period. Such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, it's during the tribulation period, your people shall be delivered. That's Romans eleven twenty six. And all Israel shall be saved. But are all Israel who call themselves Israel? No. That's why it says everyone who's found written in the book. Which book? The Lamb's Book of Life. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. I used to scratch my head and say, why doesn't it say all? Because some arose when Messiah arose already. 
So the rest of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's Isaiah 26. Some to everlasting life. That's the first resurrection. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's the second resurrection after the millennial kingdom for the great white throne judgment. And notice it says in verse 3, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. The firmament's the heavens above where the cloud, the um, stars, are. stars are. That's the right word. Kochavim in Hebrew. I'm trying to think, what's the English? This is terrible now. Okay. And those who turn many to righteousness. What is righteousness? It's obedience to the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. It's the opposite of lawlessness. Like the stars forever and ever. So the wise turn many to righteousness, which means turning them away from lawlessness. Does this mean we should be keeping and teaching the commandments of God? It's exactly what it means. Messiah teaches the same thing in Matthew 5, verse 19. Look at Matthew 5, 19. Whoever, that's such a broad term, you could drive a Mack truck through that one, couldn't you? Whoever, therefore, what does therefore mean? Because of this, because of this is verse 18, till heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or piece of a letter will pass from the Torah until all prophecy is fulfilled, which is the same as when heaven and earth pass away. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, these refers back to the law, the Torah in verse 18, and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, that's Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven, shining like the stars forever and ever. Does that sound like a bad thing? No, that's a good thing. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philippians chapter 3. Verses 20 and 21. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven. If the rapture is post-tribulation, we never get to heaven. You realize that? We stay on earth for eternity. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, who will transform our lowly body. That's at the rapture and resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and following that it may be conformed to his glorious body. What was Messiah's body like after the resurrection? He ate fish, but he walked through doors that were locked. According to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. 
Therefore, my beloved. What's the therefore mean? Because our citizenship is in heaven and the Lord will come get us one day. My beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. What if we don't stand fast? What if we say, oh, the persecution from my family and friends is too much. Let me renounce Yeshua and go back and live the way they want me to. What do we give up? But didn't Paul say that once you get saved, you just keep walking like the Gentiles? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Just a few pages back. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. What part of that is unclear? Do we just keep living the same sin-filled life we did before we got saved? If we do, the world will love us. They won't see us as any different. Does God call us to be different, to be set apart? And if you live like the world so people won't see your faith, what does that say about your faith? Hmm. How should we walk? Verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Does the scripture say without holiness no one will see the Lord? Yes. If we put on true righteousness, what does that mean? We put aside sin, right? We put aside lawlessness. We walk in righteousness. Ah, I'm about to get preachy. Let's go back to Psalms. Go back to the Psalms. David kept his eyes on heaven. That's why whenever he realized he messed up and sinned, he was heartbroken. And he was on his knees. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. We'll only do the first five verses. I know there's only five. Lord! Who may abide in your tabernacle? What's it mean to abide? To live, to stand fast, to not be removed. Is this the tabernacle on earth he's talking about? No. This is the tabernacle in heaven. So the question is, Lord, who gets to reside with you in eternity in heaven? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Because we don't remain in heaven, right? In Revelation 19.11, we return to the earth with Messiah. And then at the end of the millennial kingdom, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. And our eternity is on earth. The answer is, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness. What does that mean? That means he who keeps God's commandments. Not the one who works and lives a lifestyle of lawlessness, but the one who chooses to walk with God, to be upright, to do the things of God, and speaks the truth in his heart. 
If the truth is in your heart, that means the Torah is in your heart. What is the new covenant? The Torah is written upon your heart. Verse 3, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Is it okay to despise someone who's truly evil and wicked? Yes. yes. But he who honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Hmm. Psalm 49. Psalm 49, verse 15. This is not a Psalm of David. This was written by the sons of Korah, who, according to the scripture, were also prophets, as was David. And in verse 15, my Bible has a star beside it. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. What does it mean, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave? That means I will be resurrected. Yes, it's a very clear concept in the Old Testament. When Messiah was there visiting Mary and Martha, and Lazarus died, and Lazarus' sister says, Yes, Lord, we know that he will be raised at the last day. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they very clearly understood the resurrection. It was only the rapture they were a little funny about, didn't really understand. Okay. Turn a page to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Verse 1. But, you know what, I want to pull up the Greek real quick for a minute and see if it's really but. Nope, it's and. Always wonder why it would be but. It's just and. Because it's still part of the same teaching. Do you realize when Paul wrote this, it didn't have chapter and verse numbers. It was just a letter. And concerning the times and the seasons, that word for times in the Greek is chronon, C-H-R-O-N-O-N. The first O is soft, kra, last one's hard, known. Greek word, 55-50. And the seasons, <coughs> that word is chiron, K-A-I-R-O-N. Greek word, 25-40. The times in the seasons refer to the moedim, the appointed times of the Lord. So Paul is saying the rapture and the resurrection are associated with the Moedim. 
the appointed times of the Lord in in Leviticus chapter 23. So let's keep a finger here and go back to Leviticus chapter 23 and read about the appointed time that's associated with the rapture and the resurrection. To understand the context, I know most of you have been through this with me again and again, but some of you have not. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 23, verse 1, to make sure we understand exactly what the Lord is saying to Moses. Begins, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, the first word I want to look at is the word Lord, with a capital L and small caps O-R-D, it's talking about the four Hebrew letters, yod heh vav that we call the Tetragrammaton. So the Lord who said, I will be whom I will be, the one whom we call Yeshua, spoke. There's two words for saying things in Hebrew. Said, which is soft, and spoke, which is full of emotion. When you see, and the Lord spoke to Moses, he's pounding the podium. This is important. How many of you had a professor in college that whenever something was going to be on the test, they'd pound the podium and look at you and wink? No, I didn't have one of those either, but I wish I had. But that's what the Lord's doing. He's pounding the podium and winking. Come on, you get it? Spoke to Moses saying, the word saying means what? It's a quote. Matthew 4.4, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How do we know which words came from the mouth of God? Look for that word saying. Speak to the children of Israel. He didn't say speak to Jacob. Jacob and Israel was the same person, but Jacob is his name before he gets saved and Israel afterwards. So whenever you see the phrase the children of Israel, it means those that have the faith that Jacob had after he wrestled with the Lord and came to faith. I don't want you to use too many of your fingers. So I'm going to turn to Galatians 3, but you don't have to. Galatians 3, verse 29 says, And if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's seed. In other words, you're the child of Abraham the seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham, and heirs according to the promise. That's the same thing they mean here by the children of Israel. If you have the faith of Israel, saved by faith, then God's talking to you. And say to them, the feasts of the Lord, but it's not the word feast. The word feast in Hebrew is chag, C-H-A-G. This word, the feast is moedim, M-O apostrophe, E-D-I-M, Moedim, it means the appointed times. Moedim, M-O apostrophe E-D-I-M, Moedim. A Moed is an appointment. Appointment, just like you make it a service garage before you take your car in. When you make an appointment, you keep it. You make an appointment with your doctor, you keep it. Or she gets unhappy, right? Yes. (laughs) 
So these are appointments of the Lord. They're not appointments of Israel. They're not appointments of the Jews. These are appointments of the Lord. Where he is going to appear, he makes an appointment for him to keep. Which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Holy means set apart to the Lord. And a convocation is a gathering together to rehearse. So for 1,500 years, the children of Israel are going to keep these appointed times and they teach the first and second coming of Messiah. For 1,500 years before Messiah was born, they killed the lamb at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the 14th day of the first month. When did Messiah die? 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the 14th day of the first month. That's what these are. Then he ends by, these are my appointed times. Turn a page to verse 23. Leviticus 23-22 is the harvest period that we would call the church age. From the resurrection of Messiah to Revelation chapter 4. And then verse 23, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, again, spoke, pound the podium, saying, it's a quote, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, that month we call Tishri, or in this year we call it September. On the first day of the month, which is actually around the 16th or so of September, if I remember correctly, you shall have a Sabbath rest. That means no working on that day. This day we're going to be listening for the trumpet to blow. A memorial, memorial, a zikaron, is a retelling. What gets retold is the story of Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac, which teaches about resurrection and salvation through Messiah. A blowing of trumpets, that's the awakening trumpet blast. A holy convocation. Every year when we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, we teach about the rapture and the resurrection. Even though it's been 3,500 years, it hasn't happened yet. If it hasn't happened yet, does that mean it won't happen? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Lord said, watch. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Why? Because he's taught them to celebrate the appointed times of the Lord. How do we know Paul taught Gentiles to keep the feasts and festivals of the Lord? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us, you know that you were Gentiles. So this is not a congregation of Jewish believers. These are people out of the Gentile world. In fact, Corinth is in Greece. They grew up steeped in pagan idolatry. But they've gotten saved and turned to the worship of the true and living God. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Oh, wait a minute, i got three chats out there. Let's see if I'm missing questions. Isn't the great white throne judgment the end of the Sabbath rest 1,000 years? The answer to that is yes. The great white throne is the end of the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. And then Susie says, don't look back like Lot's wife. Yeah, that's right. And Susie says, instructions in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.14. Okay, we may have to go there, Susie. Okay. But 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, first, Therefore purge out the old leaven. What's leaven a picture of? Sin. Get rid of that sin. That you may be a new lump. Yeah, I'm lumpy, but that's not what they mean. 
since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Messiah, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. The word Passover refers to the lamb that is slain. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Which feast? Passover and unleavened bread. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of mouse and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. These are Gentile believers. And Paul has taught them to keep Passover, unleavened bread, the feasts and festivals of the Lord. Why? Because they teach the first and second coming. It hasn't been too long since I heard a preacher say, Quit saying that the rapture is going to come at the Feast of Trumpets. Because those Jewish feasts, they have nothing at all to do with the church. Really? Messiah died at Passover, was buried on leavened bread, rose from the grave at first fruits, and the Holy Spirit came at Shavuot, or Pentecost, and they have nothing to do with the church. That's just silliness. No, Paul taught the Gentile believers how to keep the feasts and festivals. And that's a lot of what 1 Corinthians is about. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. You have no need that I should write to you, he says, because they keep them year in and year out. Verse 2. If people need to put up windows of the cars, you can hear the rain coming out there. Everybody say, thank you, Lord, because we need the rain. So verse 2, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. I bet you've never heard that before, right? Every time you talk to somebody about the feasts and festivals, they say, ah, ah, Lord comes like a thief in the night. And that's true. But, but, let's read the rest. For whom does he come as a thief in the night? Who gets caught off guard? Verse 3 says, For when they say, not you, but they, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So now in verse 3 we have a they, in verse 4 we have a you. We have two separate groups. What determines which group you're in? Do you understand the feasts and the festivals? If you've never heard of the feasts and festivals of the Lord, then you might be tempted to say, gee, the Lord could come at just any time. But if Messiah died at 3 o'clock at the very time, God said, was buried right at the start of unleavened bread, as God said. Was raised right at first fruits, as God said. God bless you. Will he fulfill the prophecy of the rapture and the resurrection, just as he said? Just this week, Perry Stone. Do you know Perry Stone? He's put up a video that says, I just learned something shocking. He said, those Jewish feasts teach about the timing of the first and second coming of the Lord. Which all you guys would say, well, duh. He said, look, he died at Passover. He said, and they have to be fulfilled in order. So the next thing to happen is the rapture and resurrection. I didn't listen past that, but at least he's on the right track now. 
So verse 3, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. They shall not escape. Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 6. I don't know how God does this, but somehow our Friday teachings and our Saturday teachings all kind of relate to each other. It's almost like we're studying from the same Bible. Hmm. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 14. Referring to the false prophets. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly saying peace, peace. When there is no peace. So the false prophets will be crying peace and safety. We finally have peace and safety. And what follows? Sudden destruction. That was Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 14. Saying peace, peace when there is no peace. That's exactly what's going to happen in Israel. The false Messiah is going to confirm a seven year treaty. And the false prophets in Israel are going to say, and finally we have peace. We can let down our arms. We can let the soldiers go home. We can now depend on this messianic leader to defend us. And then comes the Psalm 83 wars. They're unprotected. And then chapter 8 of Jeremiah, verse 11. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 11. Again, referring to the false prophets, it says, For they have healed the hurt of my, the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah is crying to the people, Repent, repent. And the false prophets are saying, No, everything's fine. Peace, peace. We're not in any danger. Was Israel in danger? Yeah, they were in danger. Ezekiel chapter 13. Ezekiel chapter 13. Verse 10. Again, referring to the false prophets. It says, because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And one builds a wall and they plaster it with untempered mortar. How well does untempered mortar stand up to an attack? Not good at all. Not good at all. Go to Matthew chapter 24. Let's look at some red words. Of course, those of you on the phone, I don't know if your words are read or not. They are. They are? Okay. When I was on vacation here this last time and Daniel taught, instead of taking my Bible, I took my phone and said, I'm going to try this. <laughs> Went back to my Bible when I got back. It takes a little while to back out. You can't just leave a finger. No. <laughs> Matthew 24, 8. That's what the back error is for. <laughs> back, 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 it'll take you right back to restart. Does it really? I can go, I can go five verses in, and when you say go back to John, I can go back, 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 John. 
So can be done. Learn something. And you know, Wayne, there's something to be said for the digital world that we are, to whatever extent we choose to be in it, mm -hmm. is that it's not alive like this is. And I think there's something missing within our spirits when we try to gain understanding and wisdom and insight by being in the digital yeah. Yeah, for some people that's true. Some people love the digital world, but every time Daniel said, take a note, <laughs> underline this, I'm going, wait, no, no, don't write on my screen. <laughs> okay. So 24, Matthew 24. The first seal is in chapter 24, verse 5. That's the false Messiah being released. Seal 1. In verse 6, we have seals 2 and 3. Well, at least seal 2. Verse 7 is 3 and 4. And then verse 8 says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. That word sorrows is odin, and it means birth pangs. People are constantly saying, Wayne, we're already in the tribulation period. No, we're not. If you think this is the tribulation period, you don't know how bad it's going to be. Yeah, those first four seals kill a third of mankind. It's going to be bad. Let's go to Isaiah 26. But not to the verses on the rapture and resurrection. But to the verses not too far ahead of them. Isaiah chapter 26 verses 17 and 18. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs. When she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child, we have been in pain, we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Does that tell us the time period when the rapture and resurrection happens? That's the very next verse. So before labor pains comes what are called Braxton Hicks contractions, right? When you see the Braxton Hicks contractions hitting the world, you know the next thing that happens is the rapture and the resurrection, then the true birth pains. What would we call Braxton Hicks today? Are there any worldwide pestilences? <laughs> Volcanoes, earthquakes, floods. Um, droughts is God trying to get our attention it's coming the baby's coming let's go to Romans chapter 8 if those of you here haven't noticed yet I think we're getting real close to the rapture and resurrection so let's be ready let's watch and if we're still here in October, we'll go to Israel. Okay. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. I really love this black and white chart up here. Can you see it? The one on the front board. There's a line on the bottom that then suddenly curves up in a sigmoid curve, which is the 
curve they use to plot the birth of a baby. And it's what is tracking is natural disasters, how there were few and far between until you get to the modern times, in which case it just goes exponentially. Um, they don't even report earthquakes blow about a five anymore, right? They're, they're too common. Sometimes there's tens of thousands a day. The Lord's rumbling the earth saying, get ready, get ready. Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains until now. So there have always been earthquakes, Wayne. There's always been tornadoes and stuff. Yeah, but not like today. How many times when you watch the news do they say the greatest this in history, the most that in history? You just hear it all the time, don't you? Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. We talked in Daniel 12 about Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7, the time of Jacob's trouble. It says more than that. Jeremiah chapter 30. Let's look at verses 5 to 7. For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. <laughs> yeah. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it's the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So God here says that the woman in labor analogy refers to the time of Jacob's trouble, which is the tribulation period. And what does Isaiah say about it? In Isaiah 66. Starting in verse 7. Remember Isaiah 66 is about the second coming of the Lord. Before she was in labor she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. I hear lots of people say, this is about the rebuilding of the nation of Israel in 1948. It is not. It's about the birth of Messiah in the hearts of the children of Israel, which takes place in the tribulation period at the battle of Gog and Magog. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I, who, who caused delivery, shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will send peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then you shall feed, on her side shall you be carried and be dandled on her knees. 
as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. All right, back on the record. We're still in Isaiah chapter 66. Because I want to add in a couple more verses to tie in Isaiah 26 with Isaiah 66. Verse 14 says, when you see this, that is God protecting Jerusalem. Your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. See that word indignation? That's that same word, za'am, Z-A apostrophe, A-M. Turn back to Isaiah 26 once more to see where that verse includes the word za'am. It's in verse 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. So that word indignation ties Isaiah 26 and 66 together and associates the birth pains with the tribulation period. And Susie had said instruction in righteousness. Let's go to 2 Timothy. She's right. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The word Torah does not mean law. The New Testament translates it as law because they want you to think it's something bad. It actually means instruction. It is God's instruction in righteousness. But in other places, the, the law of sin and death, that would not be instruction. That would be like a, a physical law. or That would be like the word law. Yes, but not every time you see the word law does it come from Torah. And they conflagrated it purpose. Yeah. They want you to confuse it and make it all something that you would think of as bad. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as she says verses 16 and 17 when it says all scripture is God breathed that is it comes out of the lips of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's what Torah is. Is how can you live in a way that God will look at you and say that is righteous conduct. It says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then Susie says, he who practices righteousness is righteous. Yeah, that's kind of what it means. Okay, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That was verse 3. But you, brethren, notice there's a they and there's a you. You can't be in both groups. You're one or the other. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. So that this day should overtake you as a thief. When it says not in darkness, darkness is a term that refers to walking in the sins of the world. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. The darkness does not indicate a place in God's favor. 
Matthew 25, verse 30 says, And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's go to Luke 11. Luke chapter 11. Verse 34. Luke chapter 11, verse 34. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, which means you have a generous spirit, your whole body also is full of light. When your eye is bad, that is when you have a wicked, evil, selfish spirit, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. Yep. In, in other words, don't think that what is darkness is actually light. Don't be confused. John chapter 1. Don't we see that confusion? Yeah. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. The key verse is five, but we want to go one to five. In the beginning, oh, there's something. What is that in Hebrew? Bereshit. It's the first words of the first verse of Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now here are the key verses. And him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Why did the darkness not comprehend the light? Because it didn't want to. Because if the light shines in the darkness, that means the evil and wicked things that are being done will be discovered. Wayne? Yes, I'm... Could you, uh, the same word darkness in Hebrew, is that the same word all the way through these, each scripture we've gone through? Darkness is the same Hebrew word? And if so, what is it, please? Um, the Hebrew word for darkness. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to turn and read it to you because you're going to ask me to spell it. Oh, okay. Okay. The spelling is Chol, C-H-O, Shech, S-H-E-K, Choshek. Choshek. Yep, Choshek. Okay. So anytime we see the word darkness in the, in the word, it, that's, that's the same word throughout? It will be throughout the Old Testament. As far as I know, I've never seen a different word for darkness. Of course, in the New Testament, you're looking at a Greek word that's been translated from Choshek. So in the beginning, in the Bereshit, where it says that there was darkness hovering over the earth, that's the same word that we will be thrown into outer darkness type word? Yipper. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, thanks yep. so much. Yipper. John three nineteen. Why do I say the darkness didn't want the light? Because that's what Messiah said in John three nineteen. 
And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. So men make a choice whether to follow the Lord or not to follow the Lord. And to follow the Lord requires repentance. Because you don't have to worry about the light shining on your works if they're good. It's only if they're sinful that you worry. John chapter 8 verse 12. To further define Yeshua as the word from John 1. John 8 verse 12 says, Then Yeshua spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Can you follow Messiah and walk in darkness? No. You must turn from the darkness to the light. He is the light. There's no way. John chapter 12, verse 35. In verse 34, Messiah says, I'm about to be crucified, and the disciples are going, we don't understand. So verse 35, then Yeshua said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Notice, if you do not walk in the light, darkness will overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light, meaning that you may show the light to others. And John twelve forty six. I have come as a light into the world, and whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. Again, darkness refers to sin. Can we continue to walk in the sins of the world and look forward to eternal life? Answer is no. Go to the book of Acts, chapter 26. Yes, sir. Uh, John No, but there's lots written about the three hours from noon till they died at three, how darkness was over the face of the earth. Because the light was leaving the earth. And that was a picture of the darkness that was to come. Yeah. And he helps in explaining that in Acts chapter 26. As the Lord is talking to Paul, as Paul is relating it to us. Acts 26, start in verse 17. This is what Messiah says to Paul. 
I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. And now in parallelism, he's going to tell us what that means. From the power of Satan to God. So if you're walking with Satan, you're walking in darkness. If you're walking with God, you're walking in light that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So this is just another way the Lord is saying, once the Gentiles get saved, tell them to quit walking in sin. Turn them to Torah. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Is that salvation by works? No. Why are they doing the things that God commanded? Because of their faith. Also Romans chapter 2 verse 17. Romans 2 verse 17. Indeed you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will. And approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. So the things in the law are excellent, right? And are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who walk in darkness. If you're teaching the Torah, that's being a light to those who are in darkness. An instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore teach another, do you not teach yourself? What's he saying? You teach it, but you don't live it. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What's he mean, rob temples? To steal the idols for the gold and silver in them. What did God say about the gold and silver in the idols? Burn it. Burn it. Can't have it. Yeah. Let's go to Romans 13, verse 12. Romans 13, verse 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light which means to repent of our sins, to turn away from them and walk in righteousness before God. One more verse on this topic, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Actually, there's two more if time permits, but I only have 30 seconds, so we'll see. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 
Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? So here, light is righteousness. Darkness is lawlessness. We know what Matthew 5, 7 And those chapters say about lawlessness. So let's look at one more. Ephesians 5.8. Ephesians 5.8. Ephesians 5.8. For you were once darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And with that, we must bring our Bible study to close for the week. And we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5.